Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today's episode is the first in a series we're going to be doing over the next few months, looking at the history and future of the United Kingdom. And today we're starting with the big question, what is the union? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. I'm delighted that joining Helen Thompson and myself today, we have the historian Colin Kidd, who has written widely about the history of the Union and particularly the Anglo-Scottish Union, but we're going to go a bit wider than that today as well. Colin is the author of the book Union and Unionisms, and we're going to get on to the ism too. Um, Colin, maybe if we could start with a question. I don't know if this is an obvious question or not, and I, ha- I genuinely have no idea what the answer to this is. But if you think about the the island that we're on, the geographical space, Britain, so we'll leave Ireland, the island of Ireland, out of it for now, England, Scotland, and Wales. So we are cut off from the rest of the world by sea. Do we, have we, at various points, formed what you might think of as a natural territorial political unit? Is there anything natural about thinking that this island obviously should govern itself? We do know that historically the kings of England did consider themselves in some respect as overlords or or suzerains of the whole island. And um, we find a coinage of King Athelstan that, that refers to him as the king of, of the whole of of Britain, so there there is some element here of of geographical determinism, but of course that is by no means the whole story. And um, I think I take seriously what Benedict Anderson said in Imagined Communities that any community beyond a, a small tribe or a or, or a village, any kind of face to face community, anything beyond that, somehow has to be imagined, and is unnatural. So there's nothing more natural, say, about Scottish identity than about British identity. Each is as artificial as the other. I think we could think about this maybe in terms of making some comparisons with other islands. In some sense, you would think that actually islands are relatively easy to unify. I mean, there are cases where you have like definitely three states on one island, Borneo being the example of of that, but I think I don't know what you make of this column. But one thing I think that is striking is is that whoever's tried to have a particularly unifying project for ruling the island, leaving the union aside, which I think is a so the union as it was constructed, the Anglo Scottish Union as it was constructed from 1707, and let's say the way that it lasted between 1746, the end of the Jacobite Rebellion, and the 1970s, is has really struggled to do it. Those who tried to impose it by force from on the island itself, whether that be the Plantagenets or whether that be Oliver Cromwell, that doesn't last. And those who've tried to do it from the outside, whether that be particularly the Romans, weren't able to impose unified rule over the island. So although that I don't want to commit to the idea that there's something inherently difficult about having a union over the, the island of Britain, there is a decided pattern, it seems to me, going back a long way in history, which makes it look actually something quite difficult to achieve. 
Yes, I think there's something to that. Though I think some of the earliest attempts, I mean, in the medieval era, were as much about getting the Scots to acknowledge some kind of nominal authority in England, whether that be the monarchy or or, or also the church, having some kind of jurisdictional authority over Scotland. So I think to begin with, it's something much looser, say, than than conquest. And we can, we can find in the in the twelfth century examples, for example, where William the Lion is is forced to concede, as it were, homage to to Henry II, or when at the end of the twelfth century the Church in Scotland manages to obtain a, a papal bull cum universi from the Pope that says that. Scotland, as a, an ecclesiastical community, is not subordinate to the Archbishop of York, and that the Scottish Church is a, a special daughter, a filia specialis of the papacy. The problem here was that it's it's not until the late fifteenth century that Scotland gets gets an Archbishop. Similarly, throughout the twelfth and thirteenth century, there are sort of there are loose issues concerning. Something like suzerainty rather than control. It's only when we have a, a succession crisis in the 1290s and Edward I intervenes that we get anything anything like an attempt to to conquer Scotland. So I think in the first instance, it's as much about deferring to some nominal authority over Scotland. And this actually reappears at the time of the Union of 1707. There is a, a debate between Scottish and English pamphleteers as to whether Scotland, even though an independent sovereign kingdom, was none, nonetheless was somehow owed homage or had some kind of feudal relationship with a, an imperial crown of England. So I think there are two stories here. One is stories about attempts to conquer Scotland, for example, uh, by Edward I and Edward II, and then, of course, Cromwell in the 1650s, and something else, which is um, a recognition that Scotland enjoys a fair degree of autonomy, is a sovereign state with its own church, but nonetheless that these institutions defer in some way to some quasi-imperial power on the island. And so I I think um, one of the things we, we ought to do when we're discussing nationalism and unionism is also throw in this notion of England as a kind of quasi-imperial power on the island. So if one takes that time frame that Helen sketched out there, so sort of 1746 till yeah. 1979, say, till the election of Margaret Thatcher, and we'll come on to the significance of that. So in the, in the long sweep of that struggle that you just laid out, this ongoing contest in relation to attempts to conquer and also forms of resistance and carving out of a separate identity. In that long story, it's only a couple of centuries. Obviously, from our perspective, it's a long time, but it's roughly 200 years. It's a big question, but what makes those 200 years different? And are they different, actually, the successful union? Well, remember that the union itself in 1707 is is very much a product of contingency. Although there had been another looser union in the 17th century, what we call the Union of the Crowns, though it's really a very loose regal union, it's it's the mere accident of James VI also inheriting the crown of 
of England to become James VI and I. Nonetheless, the union that occurs in, in 1707 is, is basically an accident. It's um, a product of a succession crisis that when William and Mary, well, Mary dies first, then William dies without an heir, but then Queen Anne, or as she was then Princess Anne, is the next in line. She has numerous pregnancies, only a few children survive. The last one dies in 1700, shortly before William dies. And what the English crown tries to do is to resolve a succession crisis, because at this stage, the crown of Ireland, created in the 16th century, is dependent on that of England. So whoever becomes King of England automatically becomes King of Ireland. But Scotland remains a separate entity. And so there's a succession crisis and the Scottish Parliament tries to exercise leverage. They won't enter into the Hanoverian succession without a deal. And and, and in the end, the Scots Parliament blocks the Hanoverian succession until they are, as it were, seduced by union and certain perquisites that go along with it. There's there's an element of corruption to the story, but it's an accident. The union is all about bringing about the Hanoverian succession, and it's about bringing it about at a time when there's not so much growing convergence between Scotland and England, but there is growing divergence because there's a Scots perception that England had attempted and succeeded in frustrating a Scottish colony, an attempt to build a Scottish empire at Darien on the Panama Isthmus. So union is an accident, and it's all about bringing the Hanoverian succession. And at the time, it's Jacobitism that is the big issue. The real tension is not is not between Scotland and England. It's between those who want to uphold the glorious revolution of 1688 Nine, because it's, it was a separate revolution in, in, in Scotland. It's those who want to uphold the revolution against the Jacobites who want to restore the Stuarts. And there's a lovely line by the late political scientist Bill, Bill Miller, who says that if you're ever looking at, at graffiti in Scotland, say at, at the bus station toilets, you'll never see 1707 and graffiti, but you will see 1690 the year of the Battle of the Boyne. So from 1688-90 through to 1746, the big issues are about the Stuarts, Jacobitism, and a prevailing anti-Catholicism on the island of Britain. And that's something that continues into the later 18th century. And I think there's a, there's a, lot, of, a lot of truth in uh, Linda Colley's argument that what unites Britain in the 18th century is not so much sort of positive factors so much as an ongoing series of wars against France from the war of the Spanish succession in the early 18th century through to the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And somehow from 1746, we, we see the development of a growing British consciousness in Scotland as much as in England. Partly the empire has something to do with that, partly military military success. Though I think, oddly, the union was never 
overt in all of this. And I, I think it's important to draw some kind of distinction, say, between the union and um, support for a union ex- in explicit terms and, as it were, Britishness in general. Although um, these things might sound synonymous to some to some degree, I think I think there's quite a quite a gulf between them. That's that that's something we might explore. I would think there's a slightly different way of telling the story that gets us like from what Colin's saying to like the 1970s, which is is that if you look at the Anglo Scottish Union, the Parliamentary Union in in 1707, and you compare it to essentially the unification with Wales um, during the um, 1530s and and then parliamentary union with Ireland in 1800, all these legislations passed in um, 1800. The thing that they've got in common from the point of view of London is that there's an external crisis of of one kind or another, um, whether it be generated by the Reformation, whether it be generated with by a war with France in the next two cases. And that union, from the point of view of London, is a way of closing down what looks like an external security threat to England to stop, whether that be the French and the Spanish in the Reformation um, age or later, um, the French using the other parts of not only this island, the island of Britain, but Ireland as part of a way of attacking Britain. And that intersects in the way in which Colin's been talking about, about the, the Hanoverian um, succession, because Scotland can use the threat of withdrawing funds and soldiers from Britain's military effort um, against France. And so in time, that's very useful for when the threat, if you like, from the continent turns into the, the German threat and the height, if you like, of British unity, British consciousness, explicitly British consciousness is the two world wars. So then what you see, I think, in the in the 70s is not that London, England, loses faith in the Union, but that Scotland and Wales in different ways and, and Northern Ireland presents its own kind of crisis from the, from the late 1960s do. So the question really then becomes is, what is it about what happens in the 1960s and early 1970s that for some in Scotland and Wales, but obviously far from all, make the Union look less attractive than it did and is it in the end anything more in the 70s than wanting more influence within the union rather than really imagining any actual breakup of the union is it wanting to move to something that's more federal more and more confederal and obviously that becomes focused on then the devolution issue and i would then say the the problem then of where it becomes so tangled is is that you end up with that Labour government between 1974 and 1979, which doesn't have an English majority, spending a lot of time on these devolution questions. And because of the terms of the the referendum, where it has to be an actual majority and not just a a plurality of the voters, the devolution doesn't happen in either Scotland or Wales, but you still end up effectively with an English backlash that becomes Mrs Thatcher. And then the way that Mrs Thatcher leads the Conservative Party and governs in what looks like a very English kind of way causes a big backlash, particularly in, in Scotland. And then devolution by the Blair government becomes the, the response to that. And what we've seen since then is, is that actually asymmetrical devolution is quite destabilising for the union. It, it both encourages a Scottish nationalism that wants either independence or confederation and it encourages an English reaction against that. So there's a lot to unpack there. The first thing I think is that my framing of it, so 1979, I should have maybe said 1969, I mean, the 1970s themselves 
with the election of Margaret Thatcher are the crucial decade, but her election is comes at the end of that shorter story, not at the beginning of it. Before we kind of unpack what actually happened in the 1970s and the shape of that story that Helen told, just one thing, Colin, to pick up on what you were saying about, about Britishness, because I think this is also a key part of this, and it's a, a theme that cuts across the whole of this story. Within the Britishness story, and if, if Britishness is at least conceivable as a kind of nationalism, just, and unionism is not really a nationalism maybe in that sense, where is Scottish nationalism in that? two-century story where the union goes from being a contingency to something a bit more than a contingency, more of a fact of life. Where is Scottish nationalism in that? I'm very glad you asked that because I I think we do have to take, to unwind the story a bit and to say that while the union is a success for, for two centuries and that Scots politically are generally content with it, there's nonetheless a huge amount of friction within the union, but it it almost exclusively takes the form of ecclesiastical frictions. And this is something that's that's highly, highly technical. I won't I won't go right into the into the minutiae of this, but it it all stemmed from a an act of 17 of the UK of the British Parliament in 1712 called the Patronage Act, by which Scottish Presbyterian congregations were not able to choose their own ministers. And this, in the longer run, leads to various secessions from the Scottish Presbyterian Church, eventually leads to the massive disruption of 1843, when the Free Church breaks away from the Church of Scotland, and is eventually only resolved in a very curious act of the British Parliament, which is almost a concordat between the Scottish Church and the British state, signifying that they are co-equals, called the Church of Scotland Act of 1921. And then in 1929, the issue is resolved. Now, I think it, it is pure coincidence, and yet somehow expressive of uh, a deeper change, perhaps, that when these church issues that had been the essential kind of meat and drink of tensions within the Union throughout the 18th, 19th and early early 20th century are resolved that we see the emergence in 1928 of the National Party of Scotland and then the amalgamation of a right-wing Scottish party with the National Party in 1934. I don't think there's a, there's a logical connection here, but I think it's indicative of a process of secularisation that Scots move away from primary identities being linked to denominational allegiance to a broader, more secular national identity. And of course, to begin with, the Scottish National Party in the 1930s has very little traction, arguably in interwar uh, Scotland, even into the immediate post-war era, probably the, the communists are more influential. They, they certainly have get more seats in um, British parliamentary elections than the SNP, um, and it's only it's only in the nineteen sixties that the SNP makes a breakthrough. And I think here again we've got to ask the question: Is this breakthrough because of Scottish national sentiment, or is it that in Scotland the third party? option, as it were, the sort of the Orpington man alternative 
to the fail, perceived failures of the two main parties, that in Scotland the SNP offers an additional third or fourth party option to, to the duopoly of Labour and the Conservatives. I actually think there is something that's maybe, I'm not saying causally connective in the religious story, Colin, and the political story from the, the 60s and into the 70s, and that is that the union is incredibly creative, I think, uh, if you look at it in any comparative or historical perspective in the way in which it deals with really what are quite profound religious differences. I'm leaving the Irish question aside here, the, the profound differences within Protestantism, even if you can then say that the Anglican Church is, is exclusively Protestant, which is obviously not. And it doesn't try to force, the union doesn't try to force uniformity at all. It deals also with this question in relation to the disestablishing the the Church of Wales, um, but that when the religious questions like fade away in the which you, where you're describing, and the question becomes electoral politics, and the 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 weakening of the two main parties, which you can see obviously across the board in the United Kingdom in the 1974 than those two elections, it's a lot harder to come up with creative solutions, creative ways of containing the electoral differences than it was to come up with creative remedies for the political um, differences. They become much harder lines that get drawn by electoral politics. And I think that part of that story is the way in which what's happened to the Labour Party, really, you know, since the since the 1970s, is the only time which you can make the devolution remedy for the political problem work was the time of New Labour, um, when New Labour was in power in, in London and in Cardiff and in Edinburgh, take that away and you have you end up with much more binary choices and trying to stop things being binary was in, in one sense the very success of the union where religious questions were concerned yeah i think i i, I think there is a, a longer story to be told there yes about as it were the union being sort of largely invisible to the scottish population in the extent that um scotland enjoyed a large measure of semi-autonomy uh, within the union at uh, the state as such, didn't didn't encroach on what is is sometimes described as the parish state of eighteenth and nineteenth century Scotland, and there's also an alternative, of course, that is employed to to legislative devolution, which is that um, there's the the route that I guess conservatives um, employed in, in in Scotland of going down the route of bringing in administrative devolution. Allowing the state to have its, as it were, a distinctive Scottish, a Scottish brand, uh, a Scottish office. Now, Labour starts out as a as a home rule party, but it becomes much more centralising in the post World War Two era, and that is that is reflected in its own policy towards Scotland, and in particular, I think the key figure here is is Willie Ross, who is. Uh, Harold Wilson's satrap in Scotland. He's, he, he's the Scottish secretary during the late 60s and then in the Wilson government of, of 74 to, to 6. And Ross, Ross is someone who is a, I would describe it as a, kind of a unitarist a unionist. In other words, he, he, he doesn't like public discussions of Scottish nationalism or Scottish separateness, but within the privacy of the cabinet room and among as it were consenting adults he 
he, he practices his own brand of nationalism, fighting for Scotland in the cabinet. So it's something where he's he recognises a distinct Scottish interest that he thinks, and I, I actually tend to think he was right, something that was best served, done invisibly, because if you do it in private, it doesn't um, inflame English nationalism, which is what I think has happened as a, res- as a result of devolution. And in, in 1974, when Labour moves from its recent centralising policy to a devolutionist policy, it's not the Scottish Labour rank and file who insist upon this, but it's something that Harold Wilson imposes from the centre on Ross and the Scottish Labour Party. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So the question that I was going to ask, and it connects a few things you've just talked about, but it also connects to something that's literally happening today. Reading in the newspaper this morning, this leaked report about the Labour Party's new strategy, which is to emphasise, as it says in the report I read, patriotism and the flag in an attempt to win back red wall seats. And And in The Guardian, before the flag, it said the, open brackets, unionist, close brackets, flag in order to make it clear that the Labour Party was not going to wrap itself in the flag of St George. But it raises that question about unionism and and patriotism, as well as all of the many dilemmas that the Labour Party faces, because this was in response to some focus group work that, again, in the version I read, stretched all the way from Watford to Grimsby. And the understanding was it would be profoundly alienating to people in Scotland to adopt this strategy, but maybe Scotland had gone anyway. So there's a question about political tactics now, but there's also a deep historical question here, which is about... Is it possible, combine the language of patriotism, so leaving aside nationalism maybe, but patriotism and unionism in this story? Is that, is, was that ever more than a quixotic enterprise? No, I don't, I, don't, I don't think so, but it's a generational one. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the role in this story of, of the BBC from the 1920s to the 1970s or thereabouts in serving as a sort of communications cement for an authentic sense of British nationhood. But I think the generation that, that, that experienced that kind of British national identity as something deeply felt, that generation is, is probably fading away now. And there are quite stark generational differences in the Scottish population. And was that period, the BBC period, is that an outlier in the longer story that you told? So, for instance, in the 19th century, when you were talking about we need to separate out the idea of Britishness from the idea of the union, in the 19th century, was that conjunction not possible? Are we actually talking about a relatively narrowly defined contingent period in the long history of this island where this coming together of union, patriotism and national identity was possible? No, I, I don't I don't think so. Um, 
I grew up in the town of Ayr. The county buildings uh, in Ayr on, on, on the seafront sit on Wellington Square. And if you go around Scotland, you see plenty of, of Wellington monuments. When people in Edinburgh go to the beach, they, they go to Portobello uh, Sands. Portobello is named after the victory of um, Admiral Vernon in, in the War of Jenkins Ear in, in 1739. So I think right from the right from the 18th century, and particularly after the Napoleonic Wars, I think I think there's this same this same sense of um, coexistence between patriotism and, and and Britishness, without any any sense that, that that Scots didn't have a part to play in that story. Yeah, I mean, I think patriotic unionism is pretty strong, really, uh, through from the the Napoleonic Wars and through into the 20th century, into the uh, the First and the Second World Wars. I mean, even in regard in some place, in some extent to Ireland, I think I'm right in saying that the first Nelson statue went up in Dublin rather than anywhere else. And if, if you go around the whole island, you can find uh, this island, Britain, you can you can find um, Nelson statues. I think the question is, is what happens to it in the post-war era. And in a way, I think, again, Labour is crucial to this story because there is a way of turning it, and I think it was done pretty effectively by the Attlee government and, in some sense, the, the Conservative governments in the 50s and early part of the 60s continued this, of turning that British patriotism that it was tied to, to the war experience, collective war experiences, to the National Health Service, even the very name of it, the welfare state, a national commitment to full employment and that it's when those things come under pressure from the economic changes that are very evident by the, the 1970s and, and, and deindustrialization begins to set in, which isn't directly connected to them, but it is all part of a story in which it's a lot harder to think about there being an economic nation or a social um, nation. That's when finding an outlet, if you like, for Union patriotism becomes more more difficult, though not necessarily, I would say, impossible. Do we need to distinguish patriotism and nationalism? I mean, maybe this is just semantic, but you know, the Scottish National Party, there are arguments about the extent to which it, it should be understood as a nationalist party, but it tends to be, these days anyway, the language of nationalism that gets used in this context, which is why the Labour report today is striking, because it's trying to reclaim the language of patriotism. And Gordon Brown's played a role in these arguments for forever, it seems like. But do we need to separate those things out, patriotism and nationalism? Yes, I, I, I think we do. And I mean, it's interesting you mention the name Scottish National Party. I think um, Nicola Sturgeon gave an interview at the Edinburgh Book Festival a few years ago in which she she confessed to a certain embarrassment that the word national should appear in the, the brand of her party at all. So actually so, something that we have, I think most commentators have failed to note is that there's a whole um, cohort of supporters of the SNP who rather dislike the nationalist associations of the SNP. And what they say is some, something along these lines, oh, I just... I just want Scotland to be a normal, a normal country. In other words, a normal, independent country, usually bearing some comparison, say, to, to Norway or Sweden or Denmark, you know, like, like, like one of the Scandinavian countries. And as I say, I think Nicola Sturgeon represents that. And I, th- and I think that's part of her appeal to former supporters of the Labour Party in Scotland. 
I think the SNP is actually a curious hybrid which includes some fundamentalist nationalists, some people like Nicola Sturgeon, who are basically social democrats and who think the best way to preserve social democracy, or indeed the actly welfare state in Scotland, is actually by going it um, alone. And others who, I mean, might well be nationalist, but they are they favour some sort of gradual breaking away through devolution, max, 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 rather than a kind of a potential a Catalan-style uh, rupture or, or an Irish-style rupture from the British state. And I think the language that we use, and uh, in particular the way we kind of break things down into these binaries of, of unionist and nationalist, I think is ultimately unhelpful to understand what's going on. Arguably, at the moment, there is a, a huge binary division in Scotland, but it's actually within the SNP. And as we've seen over the last, week with the sacking of Joanna Cherry from the SNP front bench uh, at, at Westminster. We're seeing a, a war in Scotland between Salmondites and, and, and Sturgeonites for control of the SNP. And interestingly, the forces of unionism don't really have a, a leader as such in, in Scotland at the moment. And the all the oxygen is sucked out of the unionist side and all, all we read about in Scotland now are, are these wars between the, the Sturgeon and Salmon camps and their various supporters, and most of whom have, have more name recognition than any of the leaders of the, uh, the unionist parties in Scotland. Even the idea of, even the name, sorry, that um, Scottish independence is, a, is something of a, a misnomer in this debate because if you go back to the the 2014 referendum and look what Alex Salmon was proposing. And effectively, I think he was proposing that Scotland stay in a a confederation that included a monetary union with the rest of the United Kingdom. And then it joined the, or stay in, because that was his perception of it, the the European Union on a fairly confederal basis because Salmon still wanted Scotland to have all the opt-outs that applied applied to the... um, United Kingdom. I think if you look at it in that sense, it's quite hard to construct that into a nationalist independence project. Absolutely. In fact, I get a lot of flack for saying this, but while the SNP is clearly a nationalist party, that does not mean that it's not a unionist party. It supports the union of the crowns of 1603 and a continuing monarchical union. It has favoured some form of currency union. It it talks about a a social union, whatever that might mean. It's I, I think it's quite a, a clever phrase. It's actually drawn from Burns's To a Mouse, but it has a, a hint of standardised welfare policy across the island. And obviously, it also supports the European Union. And if we go back in the history of the, of the SNP, its origins in the, in the 1930s were very much in a form of uh, reformist imperialism, where there was a desire for the empire to be more of an Anglo-Scottish one and for Scotland to play um, a key role as a kind of mother nation along with England in the empire. And so whether it's via the empire, the commonwealth, the Union of the Crowns, or indeed the European Union, there's always been this this unionist undertow to uh, the SNP's core independence policy. And I think that actually I would say that the the key figure 
in the success of the modern SNP is not so much Alex Salmond who gets most of the credit, but Jim Sillers. Jim Sillers, a Labour politician who then set up his own Scottish Labour Party in the mid-1970s and then later joined uh, the SNP before becoming more of a a free-range nationalist. And it was during his time in the, in the SNP that, that Jim Sillers led the the SNP away from its original anti-common market policy of the 1970s to adopting in the late 80s the policy of independence in Europe. And I think that has been the key plank of, of the party, especially in, in reassuring Scots that independence would not mean separatism. It wouldn't mean having to go it alone. It would be Scotland would be part of some larger project. If we are heading towards Big If, the breakup of what we've come to understand as the union, though there are many unionisms, does the, the period of the Thatcher government look to both of you more like a symptom or a cause of that? Because I'm, I'm aware that, that that framing, which is it runs through the sort of late 60s, early 70s, but we haven't really talked about the 1980s, but clearly something went wrong in the 1980s in the perception of many Scots of what it was like to be governed from Westminster. But do you think it's more symptom or cause? I, th- I think it plays a, a key role as a, as a cause, because I think prior to, to the 70s, I think unionism was, in fact, a Scottish label. Remember that uh, between 1912 and 1965, the Scottish Conservatives were known as the Unionists. That was because they were an amalgamation of the older Conservatives with the Liberal Unionists who had broken away over over Ireland. And so the term Unionist was, in fact, a Scottish brand, if you like. And insofar as Unionist policy was run from London, whether via Labour or indeed via the Conservatives or or Unionists, there was by and large a, a kind of a diffidence about how Scotland ought to be dealt with, a recognition of its distinctiveness. And I think it's with Thatcherism, we drift towards something that you might call unitarism. And it revives a kind of a folk memory of English imperialism or quasi-imperialism and reminded Scots that Although the state they they lived in was the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, in effect, uh, when push came to shove, it was really Greater England. And I think it was the imposition of a single model here on the whole, well, the whole of Great Britain. Because I think, again, Northern Ireland was was treated differently. The, the imposition of a, a single unitarist policy that was seen as offensive. There are contingencies in the story. I think it was unfortunate, certainly for for the Conservatives and for the Union, that in that 1979 election, Thatcher lost her chosen Secretary of State for Scotland, Teddy Taylor, and instead had to resort to, to George Younger. Now, the difference between them was Younger was probably further to the left than Taylor, but he was educated at Winchester. He, he, he sounded like a grandee, whereas Teddy Taylor was, I mean, he represented a, a very marginal constituency in the south side of Glasgow. Um, 
Cathcar, which included the Castle Milk housing estate, but he had a a demotic lower middle class voice. And although he was further to the right than George Younger, I think the loss of, of Taylor as a communicator of Thatcherite policy, say with a Scottish accent in in, in, in the 1980s, was, was a great loss. I think it's both um, cause and symptom. I mean, there's, I don't think there's any doubt that Thatcher the way that she dealt with quite a number of issues, including not just the, the poll tax later in the decade, but the the whole issue of what was happening to the industrialised parts of Scotland in particular with incredible recklessness, fecklessness, and that the fact that the Conservatives didn't need Scottish seats in order to win substantial majorities, particularly evidenced obviously in 1983, was um, sort of a, a rationalisation, if you like, or a cause of that fecklessness. But I also don't think you can separate out what happened in terms of the shift in the 1979 election from what in part was English frustration or English conservative, I should be phrased that, English conservative frustration about what had gone on in the the 1970s over devolutionary politics. And I think that if you put the what comes with Thatcher and what comes with New Labour together, I think what you can see is, is that... Um, Mrs. Thatcher's Conservative Party was not a party in which generally Scottish influence was going to um, thrive. I think it's a very good point that Colin's making about um, the particular issue of, of um, Teddy um, Taylor. By contrast, New Labour was really quite Scottish, obviously not just um, Gordon Brown, but Tony Blair, but some of the other people who, John Reid, who, who ended up being significant heavyweights. And I think that what it gets at is, is the point in which Scotland had always done in terms of political influence within the union at Westminster, it had always done very well. You could actually say it punched well above its weight. And what's made clear in the in the 1980s under Mrs. Thatcher's Conservatives is that in that decade, that is just not, not the case at, at all. And then that lays the political aspects of the, the union, the issues that can't be, I think, fudged, where successful ambiguity isn't an option, really, really come to the fore. But I would then say that the explanation in part, I think, of why New Labour is so cavalier about the English question in its approach to devolution is because New Labour isn't particularly attuned to English issues in the way in which Mrs. Thatcher's Conservatives weren't well attuned to Scottish sensibilities. So we're going to come back to all of these questions and we're going to be doing a series of programmes and Colin, I hope we're going to talk to you again. We'll look in more detail at the relationship both between Northern Ireland and the Union and the island of Ireland itself. We haven't talked today about Wales. We're also going to be looking at England and the perception of these questions from England. But I have one last question. It's a big one, but we'll have to answer it very briefly in relation to what we've been talking about today. So in that long story, the story that precedes even the Anglo-Scottish Union about this island, this territorial space, one of the issues has always been once England became England, it was always so much bigger than the other parts. And whether we're talking about Westminster or London or England itself, this sense that within this island there was a dominant player. How different might this story be? Because this connects to the possibilities of forms of devolution going forward. How different might this story have been if England itself had been broken up in some way? So its own territorial and governing unity had been more devolved than it was during this period. Because one keeps coming back to the fact that when you think about how to disaggregate this union, there is always this enormous imbalance and it drives a lot of the politics and the resentment and everything else. 
precisely because England has never been less than England. So either looking back or looking forward, how different might this be if England itself were disaggregated in some way? Well, I, I'm just not sure that that is much of an option. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of um, Professor Geoffrey Elton, who, who thought that England was long a very centralised state and that the English were quite used to the smack of firm government from the from the centre. I'm just not sure that, the, that there has ever really been a serious a serious option here of, of decentralising, never mind devolving government in England. I mean, possibly now we might be seeing something something different. But of course, when there was that um, referendum in the northeast, I mean, it came to nothing. So well, Dominic Cummings got his hands on it. Yeah, well, Dominic Cummings was actively involved, yeah, in the campaign there. But I just don't see it as an option. I'm just not sure are there are there the natural geographical borders in England that would allow you to do this in a, in a regional way. I, I'm just not sure it's an option. I think much better is to take seriously the notion that, which, which I don't think government has even yet, to take seriously the notion that actually we belong to a multinational state. I mean, when Helen talked about Scotland punching above its weight in, in, in new labour and so forth, I mean, I thought, well, should we frame it in, in those terms? But is the union of 1707 not a union of equals in which each component part of the union has, as it were, an equal weighting, an equal voice, regardless of geography or the scale of population? And I think rather than trying to disaggregate England, I think much better would be go, to go back to the to the union and to look at the at the four component parts and to, after all, this happens in, in, in the US Senate, you know, California has the same the same weighting as, as Rhode Island or, or Delaware, to, to look at some kind of solution by way of abolishing the House of Lords in its current form and turning it into a House of Nations or a Senate of the component parts of, of, of the United Kingdom. I think that's that's the best way forward. The series that we're going to be recording about the union, we will be separating out over a few months and leading up to the Holyrood elections. And we will come back to the question of Scotland as part of that too. As we hope listeners to Talking Politics will know, the first episode of the new series of History Ideas went out on Tuesday. That was on Rousseau. It went out on the Talking Politics stream too. If you want to hear the next 11 episodes in this series, all you have to do is subscribed to Talking Politics History of Ideas. You can do that wherever you listen to Talking Politics. Just click the subscribe button. There's also a couple of weeks left if you would like to get from the LRB as part of their book box scheme, all of the books that I'm going to be talking about, plus biographies and anthology and bonus material too. If you go to either the LRB website or the Talking Politics website, that's talkingpoliticspodcast.com, you will find out how to do that. There's just a couple of weeks left. One last announcement of that kind. We've also just launched Talking Politics Plus. That gives listeners a chance to hear the podcast without adverts interrupting the conversation. You can find a link wherever you get this podcast. And it's very simple. If you click on that, you will discover how to subscribe. When we recorded our episode with Helen and Gary Gerstel about the inauguration of Joe Biden. We also had a discussion about the American Garden of Heroes. I sometimes feel that we should uh, own up a bit more when we get things wrong. And it's been pointed out to me by quite a few people that in our discussion, 
where I said, where's Bob Dylan? And Gary talked about Bruce Springsteen, that we hadn't noticed the basic premise of the Garden of Heroes, which is that you have to be dead to be in it. So if that conversation sounded a bit off, that's because we missed the big thing in front of us. I hope we don't do that too often. Next week, I'm going to be talking to Bronwyn Maddox, Director of the Institute for Government, about her assessment of how well the UK government has done over the last year in handling the pandemic. Do join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Helen, you could probably edge yeah, yourself down, down a little bit. I'm coming down. <laughs> I'm down. And Colin, what did do you have for breakfast? Well, a not, not yeah, a few oat cakes. Uh, very, very, very traditional. Um, I was going to say that's quite on brand. Yeah. Uh, <laughs>